Section 15, Chapter 14, Part 1 of 2, of Creative Chemistry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adam Marcetich, Alexandria, Virginia, 2010. Creative Chemistry by Edwin E. Slauson. Chapter 14, Part 1 of 2. Metals Old and New. The primitive metallurgist could only make use of such metals as he found free in nature, that is, such as had not been attacked and corroded by the ubiquitous oxygen. These were primarily gold or copper, though possibly some original genius may have happened upon a bit of meteoric iron and pounded it out into a sword. But when man had found that the red ochre he had hitherto used only as a cosmetic could be made to yield iron by melting it with charcoal, he opened a new era in civilization, though doubtless the ochre artists of that day denounced him as a utilitarian and deplored the decadence of the times. Iron is one of the most timid of metals. It has a great disinclination to be alone. It is also one of the most altruistic of the elements. It likes almost every other element better than itself. It has an especial affection for oxygen, and since this is in both air and water, and these are everywhere, iron is not long without a mate. The result of this union goes by various names in the mineralogical and chemical worlds, but in common language, which is quite good enough for our purpose, it is called iron rust. Not many of us have ever seen iron, the pure metal, soft, ductile, and white like silver. As soon as it is exposed to the air, it veils itself with a thin film of rust, and becomes black and then red. For that reason, there is practically no iron in the world, except what man has made. It is rarer than gold, than diamonds. We find in the earth no nuggets or crystals of it the size of the fist, as we find of these. But occasionally there fall down upon us, out of the clear sky, great chunks of it weighing tons. These meteorites are the mavericks of the universe. We do not know where they come from or what sun or planet they belong to. They are our only visitors from space, and if all the other spheres are like these fragments, we know we are alone in the universe, for they contain rustless iron, and where iron does not rust, Man cannot live, nor can any other animal or any plant. Iron rusts for the same reason that a stone rolls downhill, because it gets rid of its energy that way. All things in the universe are constantly trying to get rid of energy except man, who is always trying to get more of it. Or, on second thought, we see that man is the greatest spendthrift of all, for he wants to expend so much more energy than he has that he borrows from the winds, the streams, and the coal in the rocks. 
He robs minerals and plants of the energy which they have stored up to spend for their own purposes, just as he robs the bee of its honey and the silkworm of its cocoon. Man's chief business is in reversing the processes of nature. That is the way he gets his living. And one of his greatest triumphs was when he discovered how to undo iron rust and get the metal out of it. In the four thousand years since he first did this, he has accomplished more than in the millions of years before. Without knowing the value of iron rust, Man could attain only to the culture of the Aztecs and Incas, the ancient Egyptians and Assyrians. The prosperity of modern states is dependent on the amount of iron rust which they possess and utilize. England, United States, Germany, all nations are competing to see which can dig up the most iron rust out of the ground and make out of it railroads, bridges, buildings, machinery, battleships, and such other tools and toys, and then let them relapse into rust again. Civilization can be measured by the amount of iron rusted per capita, or better, by the amount rescued from rust. But we are devoting so much space to the consideration of the material aspects of iron that we are like to neglect its aesthetic and ethical uses. The beauty of nature is very largely dependent upon the fact that iron rust and, in fact, all the common compounds of iron are colored. Few elements can assume so many tints, Look at the paint-pot canyons of the Yellowstone. Cheap glass bottles turn out brown, green, blue, yellow, or black, according to the amount and kind of iron they contain. We build a house of cream-colored brick, varied with speckled brick and adorned with terracotta ornaments of red, yellow, and green, all due to iron. Iron rusts. Therefore it must be painted, but what is there better to paint it with than iron rust itself? It is cheap and durable, for it cannot rust any more than a dead man can die. And what is also of importance, it is a good, strong, clean-looking, endurable color. Whenever we take a trip on the railroad and see the miles of cars, the acres of roofing and wall, the towns full of brick buildings, we rejoice that iron rust is red, not white or some less satisfying color. We do not know why it is so. Zinc and aluminum are metals very much like iron in chemical properties, but all their salts are colorless. Why is it that the most useful of the metals forms the most beautiful compounds? Some say providence, some say chance, some say nothing, but if it had not been so, we would have lost most of the beauty of rocks and trees and human beings, for the leaves and the flowers would all be white, and all the men and women would look like walking corpses. Without color in the flower, what would the bees and painters do? If all the grass and trees were white, 
it would be like winter all the year round. If we had white blood in our veins, like some of the insects, it would be hard lines for our poets. And what would become of our morality if we could not blush? As for me, I thrill to see, the bloom a velvet cheek discloses, made of dust, I well believe it, so are lilies, so are roses. An etiolated earth would hardly be worth living in. The chlorophyll of the leaves and the hemoglobin of the blood are similar in constitution. Chlorophyll contains magnesium in place of iron, but iron is necessary to its formation. We all know how pale a plant gets if its soil is short of iron. It is the iron in the leaves that enables the plants to store up the energy of the sunshine for their own use and ours. It is the iron in our blood that enables us to get the iron out of iron rust and make it into machines to supplement our feeble hands. Iron is, for us, internally the carrier of energy, just as in the form of a trolley wire or of a third rail it conveys power to the electric car. Withdraw the iron from the blood, as indicated by the pallor of the cheeks, and we become weak, faint, and finally die. If the amount of iron in the blood gets too small, the disease germs that are always attacking us are no longer destroyed, but multiply without check and conquer us. When the iron ceases to work efficiently, we are killed by the poison we ourselves generate. Counting the number of iron-bearing corpuscles in the blood is now a common method of determining disease. It might also be useful in moral diagnosis. A microscopical and chemical laboratory attached to the courtroom would give information of more value than some of the evidence now obtained. For the anemic and the florid vices need very different treatment. An excess or a deficiency of iron in the body is liable to result in criminality. A chemical system of morals might be developed on this basis. Among the ferruginous sins would be placed murder, violence, and licentiousness. Among the non-ferruginous, cowardice, sloth, and lying. The former would be mostly sins of commission, the latter sins of omission. The virtues could, of course, be similarly classified, the ferruginous virtues would include courage, self-reliance, and hopefulness, the non-ferruginous, peaceableness, meekness, and chastity. According to this ethical criterion, the moral man would be defined as one whose conduct is better than we should expect from the percent of iron in his blood. The reason why iron is able to serve this unique purpose of conveying life-giving air to all parts of the body is because it rusts so readily. Oxidation and deoxidation proceed so quietly that the tenderest cells are fed without injury. The blood changes from red to blue, and vice versa, with greater ease and rapidity 
than in the corresponding alterations of social status in a democracy. It is because iron is so rustable that it is so useful. The factories with big scrap heaps of rusting machinery are making the most money. The pyramids are the most enduring structures raised by the hand of man, but they have not sheltered so many people in their forty centuries as our skyscrapers that are already rusting. We have to carry on this eternal conflict against rust, because oxygen is the most ubiquitous of the elements, and iron can only escape its ardent embraces by hiding away in the center of the earth. The united elements, known to the chemist as iron oxide and to the outside world as rust, are among the commonest compounds, and their colors, yellow and red like the Spanish flag, are displayed on every mountainside. From the time of Tubal Cain, man has ceaselessly labored to divorce these elements and, having once separated them, to keep them apart so that the iron may be retained in his service. But here, as usual, man is fighting against nature and his gains, as always, are only temporary. Sooner or later, his vigilance is circumvented, and the metal that he has extricated by the fiery furnace returns to its natural affinity. The flint arrowheads, the bronze spear points, the gold ornaments, the wooden idols of prehistoric man are still to be seen in our museums, but his earliest steel swords have long since crumbled into dust. Every year, the blast furnaces of the world release 72 million tons of iron from its oxides, and every year a large part, said to be a quarter of that amount, reverts to its primeval forms. If so, then man after 5,000 years of metallurgical industry has barely got three years ahead of nature, and should he cease his efforts for a generation, there would be little left to show that man had ever learned to extract iron from its ores. The old question, what becomes of all the pins, may be as well asked of rails, pipes, and threshing machines. The end of all iron is the same. However many may be its metamorphoses, while in the service of man, it relapses at last into its original state of oxidation. To save a pound of iron from corrosion is then as much a benefit to the world as to produce another pound from the ore. In fact, it is of much greater benefit, for it takes four pounds of coal to produce one pound of steel. So, whenever a piece of iron is allowed to oxidize, it means that four times as much coal must be oxidized in order to replace it, and the beds of coal will be exhausted before the beds of iron ore. If we are ever to get ahead, if we are to gain any respite from this enormous waste of labor and natural resources, we must find ways of preventing the iron, which we have obtained and fashioned into useful tools, from being lost through oxidation. 
Now, there is only one way of keeping iron and oxygen from uniting, and that is to keep them apart. A very thin dividing wall will serve for the purpose, for instance, a film of oil. But ordinary oil will rub off, so it is better to cover the surface with an oil-like linseed, which oxidizes to a hard elastic and adhesive coating. If with linseed oil we mix iron oxide or some other pigment, we have a paint that will protect iron perfectly, so long as it is unbroken. But let the paint wear off or crack so that air can get at the iron. Then rust will form and spread underneath the paint on all sides. The same is true of the porcelain-like enamel with which our kitchen iron ware is nowadays coated. So long as the enamel holds, it is all right, but once it is broken through at any point, it begins to scale off and gets into our food. Obviously, it would be better for some purposes if we could coat our iron with another and less easily oxidized metal than with such dissimilar substances as paint or porcelain. Now, the nearest relative to iron is nickel, and a layer of this of any desired thickness may be easily deposited by electricity upon any surface, however irregular. Nickel takes a bright polish and keeps it well, so nickel plating has become the favorite method of protection for small objects where the expense is not prohibitive. Copper plating is used for fine wires. A sheet of iron dipped in melted tin comes out coated with a thin adhesive layer of the latter metal. Such tinned plate, commonly known as tin, has become the favorite material for pans and cans. But if the tin is scratched, the iron beneath rusts more rapidly than if the tin were not there, for an electrolytic action is set up and the iron, being the negative element of the couple, suffers at the expense of the tin. With zinc it is quite the opposite. Zinc is negative toward iron. So when the two are in contact and exposed to the weather, the zinc is oxidized first. A zinc plating affords the protection of a Swiss guard. It holds out as long as possible, and when broken, it perishes to the last atom before it lets the oxygen get at the iron. The zinc may be applied in four different ways. One. It may be deposited by electrolysis as in nickel plating, but the zinc coating is more apt to be porous. 2. The sheets or articles may be dipped in a bath of melted zinc. This gives us the familiar galvanized iron, the most useful and, when well done, the most effective of rust preventives. Besides these older methods of applying zinc, there are now two new ones. Three. One is the Shoop process, by which a wire of zinc, 
or other metal is fed into an oxyhydrogen air blast of such heat and power that is projected as a spray of minute drops with the speed of bullets and any object subjected to the bombardment of this metallic mist receives a coating as thick as desired the zinc spray is so fine and cool that it may be received on cloth lace or the bare hand the shoop metallizing process has recently been improved by the use of the electric current instead of the blowpipe for melting the metal two zinc wires connected with any electric system preferably the direct are fed into the pistol where the wires meet an electric arc is set up and the melted zinc is sprayed out by a jet of compressed air four in the sherardizing process the articles are put into a tight drum with zinc dust and heated to eight hundred degrees fahrenheit the zinc at this temperature attacks the iron and forms a series of alloys ranging from pure zinc on the top to pure iron on the bottom of the coating even if this cracks in part the iron is more or less protected from corrosion so long as any zinc remains aluminum is used similarly in the calorizing process for coating iron copper or brass first a surface alloy is formed by heating the metal with aluminum powder then the temperature is raised to a high degree so as to cause the aluminum on the surface to diffuse into the metal and afterwards it is again baked in contact with aluminum dust which puts upon it a protective plating of the pure aluminum which does not oxidize another way of protecting iron where from rusting is to rust it this is a sort of prophylactic method like that adopted by modern medicine where inoculation with a mild culture prevents a serious attack of the disease the action of air and water on iron forms a series of compounds and mixtures of them those that contain least oxygen are hard black and magnetic like iron itself those that have most oxygen are red and yellow powders by putting on a tight coating of the black oxide we can prevent or hinder the oxidation from going on into the pulverulent stage this is done in several ways in the bauer barf process the articles to be treated are put into a closed retort and a current of superheated steam passed through for twenty minutes followed by a current of producer gas carbon monoxide to reduce any higher oxides that may have been formed in the gessner process a current of gasoline vapor is used as the reducing agent the bluing of watch hands buckles and the like may be done by dipping them into an oxidizing bath such as melted saltpeter but in order to afford complete protection 
the layer of black oxide must be thickened by repeating the process, which adds to the time and expense. This causes a slight enlargement, and the high temperature often warps the wear, so it is not suitable for nicely adjusted parts of machinery, and of course tools would lose their temper by the heat. A new method of rust-proofing, which is free from these disadvantages, is the phosphate process, invented by Thomas Watts Coslett, an English chemist, in 1907, developed in America by the Parker Company of Detroit. This consists simply in dipping the sheet iron or articles into a tank filled with a dilute solution of iron phosphate heated nearly to the boiling point by steam pipes. Bubbles of hydrogen stream off rapidly at first, then slower, and at the end of half an hour or longer the action ceases and the process is complete. What has happened is that the iron has been converted into a basic iron phosphate to a depth depending upon the density of articles processed. Anyone who has studied elementary qualitative analysis will remember that when he added ammonia to his unknown solution, iron and phosphoric acid, if present, were precipitated together, or, in other words, iron phosphate is insoluble except in acids. Therefore, a superficial film of such phosphate will protect the iron underneath, except from acids. The film is not a coating added on the outside like paint and enamel or tin and nickel plate. It is therefore not apt to scale off and does not increase the size of the article. No high heat is required as in the sherardizing and bower barf process, so steel tools can be treated without losing their temper or edge. The deposit consisting of ferrous and ferric phosphates mixed with black iron oxide may be varied in composition, texture, and color. It is ordinarily a dull gray and oiling gives a soft matte black more in accordance with modern taste than the shiny nickel plating that delighted our fathers. Even the military nowadays show more quiet taste than formerly and have abandoned their glittering accoutrements. The phosphate bath is not expensive and can be used continuously for months by adding more of the concentrated solution to keep up the strength and removing the sludge that is precipitated. Besides the iron, the solution contains the phosphates of other metals, such as calcium or strontium, manganese, molybdenum, or tungsten, according to the particular purpose. Since the phosphating solution does not act on nickel, it may be used on articles that have been partly nickel-plated, so there may be produced, for instance, a bright raised design against a dull black background. Then, too, the surface left by the Parker process 
is finely etched, so it affords a good attachment for paint or enamel if further protection is needed. Even if the enamel does crack, the iron beneath is not so apt to rust and scale off the coating. These, then, are some of the methods which are now being used to combat our eternal enemy, the rust that doth corrupt. All of them are useful in their several ways. No one of them is best for all purposes. The claim of rust-proof is no more to be taken seriously than fire-proof. We should rather, if we were finical, to have to speak of rust-resisting coatings, as we do of slow-burning buildings. Nature is insidious and unceasing in her efforts to bring to ruin the achievements of mankind, and we need all the weapons we can find to frustrate her destructive determination. But it is not enough for us to make iron superficially resistant to rust from the atmosphere. We should like also to make it so that it would withstand corrosion by acids, then it could be used in place of the large and expensive platinum or porcelain evaporating pans and similar utensils employed in chemical works. This requirement also has been met in the non-corrosive forms of iron, which have come into use within the last five years. One of these, Tant Iron, developed by a British metallurgist, Robert and Lennox, in 1912, contains 12% of silicon. Similar products are known as Dur-Iron and Bouffe-Colast in America, Metallur in France, Ilionite in Italy, and Neutralizin in Germany. It is a silvery-white, close-grained iron, very hard and rather brittle, somewhat like cast iron but with silicon as the main additional ingredient in place of carbon. It is difficult to cut or drill, but may be ground into shape by the new abrasives. It is rust-proof and is not attacked by sulfuric, nitric, or acetic acid, hot or cold, diluted or concentrated. It does not resist so well hydrochloric acid or sulfur dioxide or alkalis. The value of iron lies in its versatility. It is a dozen metals in one. It can be made hard or soft, brittle or malleable, tough or weak, resistant or flexible, elastic or pliant, magnetic or non-magnetic, more or less conductive to electricity, by slight changes of composition or mere differences of treatment. No wonder that the medieval mind described these mysterious transformations to witchcraft. But the modern micrometallurgist, by etching the surface of steel and photographing it, shows it up as composite as a block of granite. He is then able to pick out its component minerals, ferrite, austenite, martensite, perlite, graphite, cementite, and to show how their abundance, shape, and arrangement 
contribute to the strength or weakness of the specimen. The last of these constituents, cementite, is a definite chemical compound, an iron carbide, Fe3C, containing 6.6% of carbon, so hard as to scratch glass, very brittle, and imparting these properties to hardened steel and cast iron. With this knowledge at his disposal, the iron maker can work with his eyes open, and so regulate his melt as to cause these various constituents to crystallize out as he wants them to. Besides, he is no longer confined to the alloys of iron and carbon. He has ransacked the chemical dictionary to find new elements to add to his alloys, and some of these rarities have proved to possess great practical value. Vanadium, for instance, used to be put into a fine print paragraph in the back of the chemistry book, where the class did not get to it until the term closed. Yet if it had not been for vanadium steel, we should have no Ford cars. Tungsten, too, was relegated to the rear, and if the student remembered it at all, it was because it bothered him to understand why its symbol should be W instead of T. But the student of today studies his lesson in the light of a tungsten wire and relieves his mind by listening to a phonograph record played with a tungstone stylus. When I was assistant in chemistry, an analysis of steel consisted merely in the determination of its percentage of carbon, and I used to take Saturday for it so I could have time enough to complete the combustion. Now the chemist of a steelworks laboratory may have to determine also the tungsten, chromium, vanadium, titanium, nickel, cobalt, phosphorus, molybdenum, manganese, silicon, and sulfur, any or all of them, and to be spry about it, because if they do not get the report out within fifteen minutes while the steel is melting in the electrical furnace, the whole batch of seventy-five tons may go wrong. I'm glad I quit the laboratory before they got to speeding up chemists so. The quality of the steel depends upon the presence and the relative proportions of these ingredients and a variation of a tenth of one per cent in certain of them will make a different metal out of it. For instance, the steel becomes stronger and tougher as the proportion of nickel is increased up to about fifteen per cent. Raising the percentage to twenty-five, we get an alloy that does not rust or corrode and is non-magnetic, although both its component metals, iron and nickel, are by themselves attracted by the magnet. With 36% nickel and 5% manganese, we get the alloy known as invar, because it expands and contracts very little with changes of temperature. A bar of the best form of invar will expand less than one millionth part of its length 
for a rise of one degree centigrade at ordinary atmospheric temperature. For this reason, it is used in watches and measuring instruments. The alloy of iron with 46% nickel is called palatine because its rate of expansion and contraction is the same as platinum and glass, so it can be used to replace the platinum wire passing through the glass of an electric light bulb. A manganese steel of 11 to 14 percent is too hard to be machined. It has to be cast or ground into shape and is used for burglar-proof safes and armor plate. Chrome steel is also hard and tough and finds use in files, ball bearings, and projectiles. Titanium which the ironmaker used to regard as his implacable enemy, has been drafted into service as a deoxidizer, increasing the strength and elasticity of the steel. It is reported from France that the addition of three-tenths of one percent of zirconium to nickel steel has made it more resistant to the German perforating bullets than any steel hitherto known. The new stainless cutlery contains 12 to 14 percent of chromium. End of chapter 14, part 1 of 2. End of section 15.